Nā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, happy daylight saving. I'm Jack Tay. Today, a recent law change means Oranga Tamariki prioritises whakapapa when placing a child. We speak with the MP who grew up as a Māori child in state care, but says Oranga Tamariki should be colourblind. Then, at a moment of global uncertainty, what has this year's UN General Assembly actually achieved? The UN is not an external entity. New Zealand is part of the UN, so if we need to be in there if we want to influence and, and shape it. Plus, if, if he had another crack, would Simon Bridges be a more popular opposition leader than last time? Straight up, there's no guile or cleverness in this. Not my intention to become the leader of the National Party. Why not though? Again. Why not though? We'll have that interview shortly, but we begin with COVID-19. New Zealand is about to hit the 5 million mark for administered vaccine doses. Four full days into life at level three, Auckland continues to register new cases in the community. Chris Hipkins is, of course, the Minister for the COVID-19 Response, and he joins us now live. Tēnā koe, Minister. Thank you for being with us. Is level three in Auckland stamping out the virus? Uh, look, so far, uh, things are, are tracking reasonably well, so we've not seen uh, a significant increase in uh, case numbers as a result of the move down alert levels. It is worth remembering that we've stamped out COVID-19 using alert level 3 before. Alert level 4, we've only ever used it twice, which is this time and the first time when we had a significant number of cases throughout the country. So we can still pursue the getting back to zero using alert level 3 and alert level 2 around the rest of the country. I suppose the point is that with the country's longest period in alert level four, we didn't manage to stamp out the Delta variant of COVID-19. And I know this week there has been a lot of conjecture as to the future of New Zealand's COVID-19 response. So, so I'm hoping you can spell it out for us really clearly. What is the future of New Zealand's elimination? Look, we're still aiming to get back to zero here. Vaccination will play a really big role on what happens next. We can't continue to do all of the things that we have been doing uh, in order to continue to keep COVID-19 out and to uh, deal with COVID-19 cases. So we can't keep using level three and level four restrictions. Uh, the level of restriction that we have at the border, again, is something that we will have to uh, you know, allow for greater movement at the border in the future. Vaccination is really, really important here. Uh, and that's why, you know, it's such a big focus for us at the moment. Mm. We've just got to get those vaccination rates as high as we possibly can. Yeah, you've made that absolutely clear. And I, and I know you and your colleagues will continue to do so, that vaccination is the key to New Zealand progressing through the COVID-19 response. But when do you expect those changes will be made? When, when could we expect to see fewer level three, level four lockdowns? And when might the borders reopen? Well, vaccination, high rates of vaccination are obviously really important to see fewer lockdowns mm. and uh, we're well advanced there. I'm pretty confident that you know we're on track at the moment uh, based on people who have already come forward to be vaccinated and who are in the booking system. We, we're well on track to get over 80% but we need to do better than that. We need to get higher than that. The modelling that we uh, saw this week shows that actually the difference between 80% and 90% for example when mm. it comes to the spread of COVID-19, when it comes to hospitalisations, it's, it's very significant. 
So we, we really need to push hard to get those extra people coming forward and, and being vaccinated. In terms of movement at the border, what we set out earlier in the year before we started dealing with this particular outbreak, a plan that will see us piloting different approaches at the border, including the ability for people to self-isolate when they come back into the country. And we're doing those pilots this year so that as we head into the new year, as we get those higher rates of vaccination, we'll know some of the things that are working, some of the challenges that they pose, uh, and we can continue to evolve and adapt. Relaxing those restrictions and relaxing the restrictions at the border cannot be consistent with an elimination strategy going forward. Is that correct? Well, no, no, I don't accept that. We still have elimination strategies for a number of other very infectious diseases, mm. and we do that without needing to have those restrictions at the border and so on. But high rates of vaccination in, in all of those instances is a really important uh, weapon in the toolkit. OK, if we can consider the, the, the relaxing of those restrictions and, and the relaxing of restrictions at the border to be the end of elimination as we know it in New Zealand at the moment, when might that happen? At what level of vaccination? Well, look, again, I want to be clear. I don't see it as the end of elimination. It does mean that the elimination uh, start, the elimination process looks different to the way it does now. It means that where cases pop up, uh, it doesn't mean that there's a public health emergency every time a case pops up, but it does mean we respond quickly and we work to stamp it out where we see cases. Uh, but we'll have different tools available to do that. And, of course, with high rates of vaccination, there'll be uh, fewer... You know, even if people get it, they'll mm. spread it to fewer people. It won't be uh, as problematic as it is now, but only if we get those really high rates of vaccination. So I think we'll start to see changes between now and the end of the year. Uh, we will already, you know, we've already said that, you know, the higher the rate of vaccination, the less likely it is that we would need to use uh, those alert level escalations in the way we have in the past in order to stamp out new cases. So what happens if we reach this 90% mark that, that many of your officials have been talking about this week for population, or for the eligible population being fully vaccinated against COVID-19? If we reach that mark, Mark, and there is an unexpected community case of COVID-19, what do you do? We aim to stamp that out again, so our contact tracing systems will kick into gear in order to stamp out that, uh, that risk. Uh, we, of course, uh, you know, want to try and avoid having to use alert level you know, restrictions in the way that we have in the past. Um, our alert level system has served us very, very well in the sense that by going hard and going early, which is the Kiwi uh, approach, we've actually enjoyed more freedom than most of the countries mm. um, that have taken a more liberal view to dealing with COVID-19 cases. Uh, if you look at New South Wales, for example, they, they prided themselves on not impringing on people's freedoms and they're now in, heading into their fourth month of lockdown. We've managed to avoid that kind of thing in New Zealand by, by going hard and going early, but we, that, that is an approach that, that is, you know, we're reaching the, the end potentially of being able to use that approach. But I, I do want to say that there's still always uncertainty here. Mm. Uh, if another variant emerged uh, that was vaccine resistant, for example, then we would have to, you know, rethink. But, uh, you know, COVID-19 continues to evolve, it continues to mutate, mm. uh, and so the challenges that we're faced with continue to change. You just said we're, we're reaching the end of that approach. When is the end? Uh, look, I don't want, uh, you can't put a hard and fast date on these things, but you would have heard the Prime Minister, myself, the Director-General, all talking about the fact that we will be managing the elimination of COVID, the, the zero-tolerance approach for COVID, in a different way in the context of a much, much uh, quite highly vaccinated population, which is what we're heading towards. OK, but um, unpack that for me a bit more, if you can, please, Minister. I appreciate you can't give us a hard date at the moment, but what is the threshold when that starts to change? Is it 90%? 
Oh, look, it's already starting to change now. And so uh, the fact that we've moved from alert level four to alert level three, for example, the fact that we have a uh, good coverage of, of vaccination in Auckland is helping uh, with that. It's helping to mitigate that risk. So uh, every person, extra person that comes forward and, mm. and is vaccinated, again, that helps to mitigate the risk. So uh, <clears throat> you're already seeing a shift in approach. So, so if we are at 85 per cent, say, no, not that golden 90% threshold, but at 85% or 87% of the eligible population being vaccinated and there is an unexpected community case of COVID-19, will you consider lockdowns? One of the reasons that I've always avoided, uh, you know, latching onto a particular number or a particular target is it's the it's the information that sits underneath that that actually is the most important. So getting to 90%, the question then becomes, what does the 10% look like? Who's in that 10% who is not vaccinated? Mm. And if there are high concentration pockets of people who are unvaccinated, then that's still a really significant risk. So take Auckland for example. Beginning of beginning of this week just passed, uh, we still had around 23,000 over the age of 65 in Auckland. Auckland who hadn't been vaccinated. Now, if you think about people contracting COVID-19 and ending up in hospital, the hospitalisation rate for that age bracket, something mm. like about one in six. So with 23,000 still unvaccinated in that age cohort, that's still potentially a lot of people in hospital uh, if we ended up with a, a more widespread outbreak. So all of those numbers that sit underneath those big targets are the things that matter. So I think it's great that people are sort of latching onto 90% and saying, let's as a country strive towards mm. that. There's absolutely no harm in that but we've got to think about what you know who makes up the unvaccinated group when we're talking about the the sorts of things that might happen in the future but is there a point though when the government says actually you know we have publicized the vaccination process as much as possible the barriers to vaccination are as low as they're going to get everyone has had a good opportunity to be vaccinated and i'm sorry if you haven't been vaccinated by this point that's on you I think some of the ethical decisions that the government has to take do change a little bit in, a, in, a con, in the context of everybody having access to the vaccine and having had ample opportunity to be vaccinated. So if we go back a year and a half ago, uh, we had a deadly disease that was uh, potentially going to devastate New Zealand. No one really had any alternative. Uh, the, you know, there, wasn't, uh, there weren't choices here mm. in terms of vaccines and so on. People do now have those choices. So when we make those future decisions, yes, of course, uh, the, the, the ethical dilemma facing government is a little different uh, to what it was even six months ago. Is that to say that, that that point at which you say, sorry, you've actually had the opportunity to be vaccinated now, changes depending on the nature of the population who remains unvaccinated, whether that be ethnicity or age group? Um, look, I think just understanding the who's not vaccinated population is an important part of risk mitigation. Uh, what I don't want to do, though, is get into this finger-pointing exercise where we start saying, you know, start sort of labelling particular groups of the population because vaccination rates are slower in those groups. Mm. We, we need to just get out there and encourage people to be vaccinated. And I think a finger-pointing type exercise is actually going to be an impediment to getting people to come forward and be vaccinated. So I'm always very, you know, hesitant to, uh, when it comes to talking about that sort of thing because it quickly descends into a thing of saying well th mm. those people just aren't pulling their weight or they're not doing what they should be doing uh, actually that's not helpful if we're at 87 percent of the eligible population being fully vaccinated in july of next year do we just continue with the strategy then until they're at 90 percent Oh, look, I think we, I, I am hopeful that we will move much much faster than that like i said but, but why we're, we're already we looking at you know 
we're already looking in the next week or two at getting to, uh, to uh, over 80% across mm. the country in terms of first doses. Uh, and I think that we, we're still seeing high levels of demand. Now, some of that demand is shifting from the, the first dose to the second dose. Mm. So that's good. It'll get people more, uh, more protected. But we still need those first doses coming forward. But we've made phenomenal progress. And if we do look at some of those groups where vaccination rates are lower, um, the last couple of weeks have, have seen a really significant shift there. So some of the, our ethnic groups, Māori in particular, where we've seen lower vaccination rates, that's really started to mm. move in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and, you know, we, we just got to keep the relenting uh, focus on that, or unrelenting focus, I should say, on that to make sure we get those numbers up. The former Prime Minister, John Key, has published a five-point plan for um, changes to New Zealand's strategy for handling COVID-19 in the future. I understand you've seen that plan. What do you think? I think it's a great uh, piece of politics. Obviously, sometimes if you, you know, construct an argument about something that's not happening and say, and say why it shouldn't happen, um, then it makes for compelling reading. Uh, but actually, many of the things John Key is arguing are already happening now. We're already looking at move, you know, greater movement at the border and how we can facilitate that. We are already looking at moving past having our level, alert level three and four uh, escalations as our default to cases in the community. Those things are happening already. I really don't agree with him describing New Zealand as a smug hermit king. Um, and I, I think that's an insult to New Zealanders who have actually uh, achieved some of the highest rates of freedom in the world um, by, uh, by, by going hard and going early when we've needed to. So I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've asked you before when we would be ending the alert levels three and four depending on vaccination rates and you said you couldn't put a firm date on it at the moment or give me any sort of threshold but now you say you are moving towards that. So when is that? Well, it'll be a progressive thing. You know, there's not, as I've said all the way along in dealing with COVID, there won't suddenly be a magic day where we just wake up in the morning, cut a ribbon at the airport and say, that's it, the pandemic's mm. all over. Uh, but you'll see a series of progressive changes. So even the fact that we moved to alert level three earlier than we might have done in the past, vaccinations played a role in that. Mm. Uh, that you know, the, it's always changing. Um, one of the suggestions from Sir John Key was that uh, we incentivise uh, vaccination providers for Māori and Pacifica people with a financial incentive for every person they give a vaccination to in the coming weeks. What do you think of that idea specifically? Well, they are already funded based on uh, each individual person that they vaccinate. So each individual person coming forward and being vaccinated, they get paid an extra amount for that at the moment now. I'm aware that some uh, businesses, some um, community groups are offering incentives, whether that's creating some kind of festival where people come along and be vaccinated. I've seen some of our bigger employers offering people a cash bonus if, they, mm. if their employees go off and be vaccinated. All of those things are helpful. They're all good. Um, and the more people do of that, the better. Okay, would, would the government consider offering some sort of financial incentive to get people to, vac to get vaccinated? Look, I wouldn't rule it out, but we haven't done anything like that at this point. But I, it, there are a lot of those things happening at the more local level, mm. and I fully support them. In considering the moves through alert levels, have you and your colleagues been advised that the latest lockdown in Auckland has coincided with a surge in acute mental health problems? Oh, I'm absolutely aware um, that lockdowns bring a whole other set of challenges with them. Economic, uh, social, uh, mental health is absolutely one of those. A University of Auckland study has found that suicide attempts in children aged 10 to 14 increased significantly following the 2020 lockdowns. So how much will concerns over mental health affect your decision regarding future lockdowns? 
all of those things uh, come into play uh, when we consider lockdowns. We're obviously looking at, you know, what are the least restrictions we can impose in any given situation for mm -hmm. the maximum benefit? Uh, and again, as I said, I just want to keep reiterating the point. In a more vaccinated world, um, you can achieve greater things with fewer restrictions. Uh, let's talk about MIQ. 18 months into the pandemic, in how many other countries that you know of is the government denying entry to citizens? Well, there are very few other countries that are in the position that New Zealand is in where we don't have, by and large, you know, taking aside what we're dealing with at the moment in Auckland, we don't have COVID-19 circulating in the community. So our risk tolerance is different uh, to many other countries, and that means that border movement restrictions uh, have been an integral part of that. Mm. That's been how we've kept COVID-19 out of the community. So without them, we wouldn't be in the fortunate position that we are in now. But I'll also absolutely acknowledge that we are a very international community in New Zealand. We're used to being able to travel. We have family uh, spread all around the world and there are people who have been separated from their families, uh, kids who haven't seen their grandparents, you know, yeah. adult kids who haven't seen their own parents. Uh, look, I, and, I, and I never would underestimate the impact that that has on people. Yeah. And we do want to get past that. We do want to get to the point where that's no longer the case. But at the moment, uh, the border restrictions are what has, has put us in the fortunate position we've been in. But, but, but why is it any more dangerous for someone who has been fully vaccinated um, with the Pfizer vaccine to come back to New Zealand and self-quarantine at home, say, than it is for someone who's not vaccinated to visit a supermarket in South Auckland today? Well, in due course, of course, that, that's the direction of travel. So we are piloting self-isolation at home and making sure that we're getting systems ready to go, that uh, when, we, when we're in a position mm -hmm. to be able to do more of that, we, we've already you know, tested out all of the systems to allow that to happen. That is absolutely the direction that we're heading in. Should you have built self-specific uh, MIQ facilities? I know that a chorus of advisers and other political parties say we should have built purpose-built MIQ facilities. Well, of course, uh, many of those people who are chorusing for purpose-built MIQ facilities are now saying that we shouldn't be using MIQ. Uh, and had we started building them at the time they were arguing, they'd probably be starting to become useful, uh, usable, uh, right at the time when they are mm. now starting to argue that we shouldn't be using them anymore. I mean, you, you saw yourself how oversubscribed the, um, the, the MIQ lottery system was this week. More than 20,000 New Zealand citizens who want to return home are unable to at the moment. From the information you have available, what is a realistic time frame for vaccinated people, uh, vaccinated New Zealand citizens who want to return home, being able to return home at their will? Look, I think early next year we will start to see changes to the way we manage the border. Uh, now, I don't want to put specific timeframes in terms of volumes and what we might see in terms of volumes, but we will see changes uh, as we head into the new year. And of course, as vaccination rates continue to go up, there are a few, still a few unknowns. We don't yet know when the uh, five to 12 year olds are going to have, or five to 11 year olds, I should say, are going to be approved for, for vaccination. That will make a big difference to the overall risk profile of, mm. uh, of the whole community once we can get a greater proportion of people vaccinated. We're still, I'm still hopeful that that will happen at some point in the next couple of months. So October was the time frame, late October is the time frame that Medsafe have been giving us for that approval. Uh, that would mean that we could get through quite a lot of that vaccination this side of Christmas. Those sorts of things actually have mm. an impact on what happens early next year. One last question. Booster shots on 
August 22nd, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield said, we are just finalising our discussions with Pfizer and they are at a pretty crucial stage. Of course, the FDA in the United States has made some calls on booster shots from Pfizer this week. In Israel, people are already receiving Pfizer booster shots. What's the latest? Look, I'm very comfortable with where we're positioned in terms of our commercial discussions with Pfizer, uh, that if we need to have a booster shots, then we'll be able to access them. The decision about that sits with MedSafe as to whether or not uh, people should have a third shot of, uh, or whether that should be approved uh, for a third shot of the Pfizer vaccine. But we know that we're going to need vaccines against COVID-19 in the future, whether it's a, a booster shot, which mm. of course is a, is a pretty strong possibility, or even just a whole other course of vaccine at some point in the future, in the near future. Uh, we've got to be planning for that. So we, we've got a series of advanced purchase agreements that give us access to a portfolio of vaccines uh, over the coming year and into the future, so that we, whatever, however the science shapes up, uh, we can make sure that we're ready. Tēnā thank you very much for your time. That is COVID-19 Response Minister sure Chris Hipkins. Up with the first interview on Daylight Saving. Next, we will go to Melbourne after several days of violent anti-lockdown protests. And then Simon Bridges on why he definitely, absolutely, most certainly does not want to be the National Party leader again. Uh, now's the time where I, I, I'm trying to get some balance, uh, spend more time with family, yeah, go on the odd reality uh, TV show. Melbourne saw three consecutive days of violent clashes between police and people protesting COVID-19 restrictions this week. But to what extent should concerns about similar protests and violence influence New Zealand's COVID-19 strategy? Melbourne-based epidemiologist Professor Tony Blakely is with us now. Kia ora, Tony. From, from the conversations you are having with colleagues and policymakers, is there a sense that tolerance for public health measures is waning? Oh, absolutely. Um, we've been here in Melbourne on about 240, 250 days of lockdown now, cumulatively. Uh, we're over it. We're looking for other ways of dealing with it. Uh, in this particular instance with the construction industry, there were other people piling into that mar mm. uh, march, be it from the right, be it from people just wanting to have a, a fight with the police. But there were also people in the construction industry who were genuinely concerned, uh, who for whatever reason didn't want to have a vaccine, uh, there was a very interesting article in our Saturday paper here yesterday where one of the reporters was speaking to some of these people and they're saying, look, I've had enough of this. I, I can't reach out to my mates. I, I can't go and have a beer with my mate who's struggling. I, I just we can't keep living like this. And that's where we're at here is that we realise that we need to pivot to living with this virus and what respect that looks like. These lockdowns are not measures we want to keep using into the future. We need alternatives, which obviously is vaccine, but also other innovations like better ventilation, air filtration in buildings, better rapid testing. We need to actually get more innovation so that we don't need to go back to lockdown every time. Obviously, the, the violence was at the extreme end of things, but do you mm -hmm. think there are lessons from the events this week for New Zealand? Um, there's only so long you can stay in a lockdown. I think the situation in South Auckland uh, that you've got there is challenging because you've got a tail of 10 to 20 cases per day. And we've seen in the ACT, Canberra, that you can't eat that out once it's there. 
Um, I think in retrospect, our experience in Melbourne and lockdown five, so the last one we actually eliminated Delta is now, I realise is the atypical. Mm. We were not able to eliminate it uh, in Victoria with very go hard early, same as New Zealand. New South Wales had a different approach. And so what that means for New Zealand is that you've got some very challenging decisions coming up soon about probably having to open up in the context of the virus still circulating in your population. The alternative is to stay in lockdown, hard lockdown, particularly in South Auckland, for as long as it takes to get your vaccine coverage to your 87% or your 90% that you were talking about with Minister Hipkins. I don't think the public tolerance will last that long. You and your colleagues released modelling this week, laying out the future for Victoria, and you considered some of the some of the factors that distinguish Victoria's response from New Zealand's. For example, the use of both AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines. But of course, Victoria has a similar population to New Zealand. Mm. What were the main takeaways from that modelling? Yeah, quite a few, and they're useful for New Zealand. First of all, the one that the public have in their mind of 80% adults will be tickety-boo, no way. 80% of adults only vaccinated, so you spend still half your time in lockdown for a moderate inflow through the border of vaccinated people, because remember, they can still carry the virus from time to time. But there's some good news. The good news is if you step up from 80% and actually also have a minimum level of public health and social measures in at all times, which in New Zealand would be something like alert level two, maybe a tad less. It just means that the virus doesn't take off on you and the contact traces lose control. And here's the critical one, you vaccinate five plus year olds. You do those two things, things is looking a lot better. Mm. So for Victoria, you'd be one for 14% of time in lockdown, but that's still not good enough because I don't want to spend 14% of time in lockdown next year when we're at 80% vaccination. And that's where the innovations come into place. So in these models, they're like a chessboard or a pinball machine. You can reach in there and make some tweaks. And when we reached in there and we did some things that looked like what ventilation air filtration would be in the CBD and in schools, it was pretty good. And when you reached in there and you did something that would look like apps on phones that actually work for contact tracing or rapid antigen testing that you deployed to high risk environments at the time, it was pretty good. And when you reached in there and you actually made boring old masks uh, used at those lower levels of restrictions with high quality masks and trying to do it better, it was pretty good. And so those are, this is what I was talking about before, is that we need to have innovations that we can pull out of our toolkit mm. that aren't just a lockdown. And those mm. are the innovations we need. Those innovations with 80%, including kids, things will be pretty good and until the vaccine wanes, which we can talk about if you like, but that is the big issue for next year. Okay, yeah, t talk us through that. Okay, so uh, you guys have gone with Pfizer, which is great. It's a bit better than us with a mix with AstraZeneca and Pfizer, but we know from Israel now that Pfizer is waning. And after six to eight months' time, you need boosters. But you can't make that decision devoid of what's happening in the rest of the world for two reasons, an equity argument, why should Tanzania only be at, let's say it's 12% when we're boosting, when they should really be at 80% when we're boosting on equity argument? But also, if we want to reduce the chance of a new virus emerging that's even worse, we want to get the whole world vaccinated. So mm. this is going to be the conundrum for Australia, New Zealand, places like us, is when do we start boosting on that balancing with the rest of the world? Hopefully the mRNA uh, manufacturing capacity boosted so much in other vaccines that we won't have to struggle with that ethical issue, but it is going to be quite a challenge. 
if we can, then we need to be boosting. In fact, many people are saying that actually it's a three-dose vaccine course, mm. and that's what we should be getting to as quickly as possible. That's what we're seeing in Israel at the moment, of course. People are receiving three doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, it won't be too long before the first New Zealanders to have been double-dosed with Pfizer might be experiencing that waning immunity you discussed. So at what point do we need to make this decision? Hmm. Well, I think, first of all, get everybody above 80%, maybe 90%, and I congratulate New Zealand on having that as an explicit target, including the children, and then you would start certainly boosting those people who've got an immunosuppressive disorder, a cancer, that type of thing first. Mm. And then it's going to be a tricky decision about what's happening in the rest of the world and what's happening in-country uh, as to what we do next. So mm. it, I'm not going to be drawn on a timeline on that because of that international equity argument. All right. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. That Pleasure. is Professor Tony Blakely. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, two-thirds of young people in contact with Oranga Tamariki are Māori. But should Papa matter when it comes to placing kids in homes? Hōki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Act MP Karen Chaw was drawn to politics by her own experience growing up as a Māori child in state care. But even though more than two-thirds of children in contact with Oranga Tamariki are Māori, Chaw says ethnicity should not be a consideration in deciding what's in a child's best interest. She wants a law change that she says would help to make Oranga Tamariki, quote, colourblind. This follows a case in Napier in which Oranga Tamariki have been attempting to remove a Māori child from adoptive Pākehā parents, which is being challenged by the courts. Karen Chaw is with us now. Tēnā koe, Karen. Thank you for being with us this morning. The section you want changed, the law you want repealed, is Section 7A. It was introduced in 2019. This policy reinforces that if children and young people are unable to go home, Oranga Tamariki must strive to achieve permanent care that meets the needs from within their family, whānau, hapu, iwi or family group. Why do you want the section removed? Oh, hi Jack, thank you for that introduction. Can I just make a quick correction to one of the statements that you made at the very beginning, saying that I didn't want um, whānau or hapu to be a consideration in where children should go. Um, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, culture and uh, history is very important and where we come from is very important. What I have an issue with is when it overrides what's in the best interest for our children. So yes, family, iwi or hapu are a great place to start but that's not always possible and I just don't want it to get to the stage where we are overriding the best interests of our children. Okay, we're joined now by Lady Tudeiti Moxon who is a child advocate and is involved with a group of dames who have been challenging the state over the state of Oranga Tamariki. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A and thank you for being with us. Why should Seven A, Section Seven A, remain in the Act. Well, it's the one thing in the Act that actually protects our children, protects our Fano, Hapu, and Iwi, and protects them, who we are as Māori. Unfortunately, what's been said at this time and place is incorrect because even the Waitangi Tribunal in both the health and, and the Oranga Tamariki claims have said mm. even that 
that clause is reductionist. So it becomes so watered down, no one pays any attention to it, and that's certainly been the case um, where these children have been taken away, actually stolen from their families before they're born and after they're born. And um, that's it's just got to stop, Jack. So, so Lady Moxon, to be clear, you're saying that Section 7A or 7AA, introduced in 2019, isn't working? Well, what I'm saying is that it's better than nothing. And um, so far, nothing has been um, really improved mm. in terms of what has been done in terms of Section 78, for example, where they're just taking our children still willy-nilly and never giving them back. It's one thing to remove a child from a family and um, for their child's safety at that moment in time, but they never give them back. And what we've been saying forever and a day is give them back, support the whanau to be the best whanau they can be so they can look after their own children. And that's the issue that we have here when you think that these children are actually being uplifted and taken into state custody. And, and, and hawked around all over the place to, so they're given to the four winds and they never know who they are and I tell you what the trauma it causes those children the, the pain and suffering it causes those families mm. is irreparable and yet we still think the state is a better parent and we know for a fact after 14 failed reports 14 right. failed audits and after the Ombudsman's report, the, treaty, the Waitangi Tribunal report, the Final Order report, and, and, um, and the um, uh, Children's Commission's report, this is not the case. All right, Lady Moxon, I'm just going to hold it there. I want to make sure we stay focused on Section 7AA, which is the uh, section that Karen Chaw wants removed from the Act that governs Oranga Tamariki at the moment. Uh, Karen, I know that your journey through politics and your first-term MP at the moment has been driven by personal experience. Could you talk to us a little bit about your background here? Yeah, so I mean, I was raised um, in the beginning of my life by my grandparents, and and like Lady Moxon says, it's fantastic if you can have family members that can love and care for you, and that should be an option. But to say that there's no other protections within the Oranga Tamariki Act is not quite right. Within sections four and five of the Act, um, a lot of these issues are. Um, taken into account. My issue with Section 7A is, is we, we get this perception of, of a separate system for Māori and non-Māori. And I agree, the system is very broken. There are major issues with Oranga Tamariki, and Oranga Tamariki can cause a whole lot of damage and re-traumatise our kids all over again. Mm. And I'm not arguing against that. But if I thought that Section 7A was for all children, and not trying to separate us and divide us into different categories, then yes, 100% I'd be behind mm. the, the idea of family first, whānau first. But when I get non-Māori people contacting me saying they have brought this up as an issue with OT and said, what about Section 7A within the Act? They are told that that's only for Māori and you're not Māori, so that doesn't apply to you. So. Whether that's true or not, I don't know if that's legally true, but that is the idea that has come through Oranga Tamariki, and that is the attitude that's coming through. And as far mm. as I'm concerned, 
all children that go into care should be treated equally and all our children should have the same rights and the same opportunities to have a better mm. life and to become their best selves. OK, I, I just want to be clear on something. I know from your personal story, when you were in state care as, as a Māori child, that social workers said at the time you couldn't be placed with your grandma because she was too old, even though your grandma had previously had custody yes. of you, even though she wanted to take you, even though you wanted to be with your grandma. If 7AA had been in place, would you have been able to stay with your grandma? From the stories I'm hearing now, no. Uh, nothing's really much changed. Um, yeah. But sorry, it's sorry. I mean, to be clear, though, you, 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 you know, 7AA specifically mm. says that Oranga Tamariki effectively must strive to achieve permanent care that meets the needs from within a child's family, whānau, hapu, iwi, or family group. So the way I interpret 7AA, you, as a child in state care, would have been placed with your family, with your whānau, with, with your iwi, with your grandma. Not, not, nece not necessarily. Um, and that's the problem. It, it's, it's become too, like, like Lady Moxon has said, it's become too watered down. It depends on interpretation and it depends on which caregiver you get and which social worker you get. And, and this shouldn't be happening. We need an absolute definition of mm. what the intention is and make sure if we do have a, a legislation or a piece of legislation in place, that it's been followed for all children mm. so that all our children have the same opportunities in life and, and this just isn't happening and and whether or not that section was meant to um to be separate or not that is the impression that that section is giving and that is the attitude that the department is giving to the public mm. now it was created with the best of intentions and i really understand what the intention was but unfortunately that's not what's happening mm. Lady Moxon, I'll come back to you on that. Uh, more than two-thirds of children in contact with Oranga Tamariki are Māori. Has a colourblind system, to use Karen's term, served children in state care in the past? Well, it certainly hasn't served Māori. And it certainly hasn't served our children. At least Section AA, 7AA, um, gives an opportunity for these parents to be heard because they haven't been heard. They have just uplifted children under Section 78 and just taken them away. Section 7AA is there for, for Oranga Tamariki and it does give them a steer, but they are not implementing it. And if we don't have that protection there, all we're going to be doing is, to, is taking more and more children away, causing more and more harm, causing more pain and suffering, and, the, and dealing with the kinds of issues we're dealing with now, where we've got children mm. who belong nowhere and don't know who they are or where they belong. And that is the big issue that we've got in our country that we're facing. Mm. And so what we've got is we've got Oranga Tamariki, which is feasting on the backs of our people's misery. And that, Jack, has to stop. To be clear, when Oranga Tamariki are placing a child in a home, do you think they should prioritise whakapapa over finding that child a safe, stable, loving home? No, no. 
what they should be doing is speaking with the whānau, talking with the whānau, looking for the best possible solution for mm. the whānau. And, and you know, for some reason, everybody thinks that Māori pet whānau can't be trusted and there's no safe um, and secure whānau anywhere. Mm. Well, that's not true. That's, that, that's a fallacy. Mm. And, you know, the thing is, Māori can do this, Māori can do it for ourselves. We've been doing it for ourselves for, for, for thousands of years, and we will continue to do it as long as the state stops interfering mm. with whānau. Mm. And, and the other thing, too, about the, the child, taking a child out of a whānau in the best interest of the child, who said that the best interest of the child was not to be with their whānau. Where did that come from? Who's been perpetuating this view that Māori are undeserving, Māori are bad parents, mm. the state's a bad parent, let me repeat that, and that Māori can't do it for ourselves. And there are nobody, there's nobody in the whole world mm. within our, our, our whānau, hapu and iwi who can take care of that child. Right. For uh, too long, they have looked at other people to look after our children. I, I think one thing we can all agree on is that it is a national disgrace that two-thirds of the children who are in yes. contact with Oranga Tamariki are Māori. So, Karen, for the final word on this, I, I want to come to you. If we are to address the root cause of these issues, what do you think needs to change in New Zealand? I think it's a societal attitude. We need to realise that all our children are vulnerable. They are born vulnerable. They rely on us to give them the love and the care that they deserve. And unfortunately, in some situations, this just isn't happening. And we can't deny that. We can't deny there are homes where these children just aren't safe. Not all um, Māori, not all non-Māori, um, are perfect parents. We can't, we can't pretend that. Mm. And we, we have an obligation to protect these children, but we also have an obligation to make sure that when we do go to protect these children, we're putting them in a better environment than what they came from. Mm and also wrap around the services of the family that this is happening to and, and try and get them to a place where they are capable of being the best parents that they can be. And I don't think our system works, and I do agree, but what I don't agree with is that the system is just broken for Māori. It's broken for all our children. All right. We will end the conversation there. Thank you both so much for your time. That is ACT MP Karen Chaw and Lady Tudati Moxon. After the break, we will take you live to the Big Apple. I'm here at the United Nations General Assembly in New York and we're going to be talking to New Zealand's ambassador to the UN. What does he have to say about the big topics up for discussion this year? The three C's, COVID, climate change and the re-emerging conflict, East versus West. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back. Because of COVID-19 restrictions, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has addressed the UN General Assembly via video link this year. One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis is based in New York. She's been speaking with New Zealand's UN ambassador and she is with us now live. Kia ora, Anna. What, if anything, has this year's UN General Assembly achieved? 
great question, and I don't know that we will ever know that there's an actual tangible outcome of these sorts of meetings because, as uh, New Zealand's ambassador, Craig Hawke, made it clear to me this morning, these sorts of general assemblies are a lot about political messaging. We've certainly seen a lot of that this year. Uh, the usual stunts, we had Brazil's president, very far-right anti-vaxxer, come and do a bit of a stunt with some pizza, saying he couldn't eat indoors because that matches his anti-vaccine mandate messaging. We saw Boris Johnson take to the stage in person and bring up Kermit the Frog. Uh, it ain't easy being green, he says. Well, it is if you commit to proper climate change policies. So there's a whole lot of things, uh, talking points rather, that come out of these sorts of meetings. But just whether there's going to be any action yet might take a couple more meetings of these leaders in the next month or so. The G20 mm. obviously coming up next month before we see any tangible action. But those two really big talking points, climate and COVID this year. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19. You've been speaking with New Zealand's UN Ambassador Craig Hawke and equitable access for vaccines is a central topic of discussion. It sure is. I think every country might have brought this up. If they weren't talking about the pandemic, they were absolutely talking about the new issue, which is supply, including our own Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern saying more needs to be done on that COVAX programme. Now, New Zealand's put funding into that as well as supplying actual physical vaccines for that. But really, it's going to become a bit of an issue very shortly. The World Health Organisation saying this week that 90% of poor nations, including the likes of Africa, are yet to receive even one dose, let alone the full schedule that will be required to see our world open up again. Uh, the WHO also calling on Big Pharma, Moderna and Pfizer to start releasing those recipes. Well, New Zealand's asking for more on COVAX, and Craig Hawke said uh, there, wa there were ways, he was working on some diplomatic routes to try and get more done on that programme. And the world is a complicated place. So, and we are all relatively small um, uh, when you start looking at the 193 members. So we have to be smart, we have to be organised, we have to be focused, we have to be clear what our messages are and we have to be clear what our asks are. And at the moment they have been around first um, vaccine access and then secondly it's been around the, the economic impact um, in the Pacific, particularly those countries who've relied on tourism. Um, they've seen huge, huge economic shocks. So we're looking at things like um, supporting them with concessional finance, what does it look like in terms of debt um, going forward, how can they have social safety nets for social protection, and making sure that you know, um, uh, um, and our region remains safe and secure. So it seems like places like the US will do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to pushing Moderna and Pfizer to release those recipes and get that supply through, but it's going to be on New Zealand to really work on that funding uh, and also the distribution of those vaccines, of course, being so close to the Pacific. Whatever mm. happens to our Pacific neighbours with the COVAX programme will have an impact on New Zealand and our ability for families to reunite, tourism and trade to pick up again. In her address, Jacinda Ardern talked about New Zealand's efforts to reduce the impact of climate change. Obviously climate change is a big talking point ahead of COP26, but is it just a talking point? Unfortunately, it seems like it might have been just a talking point at the General Assembly this year. Again, something that nearly every leader brought up, either because they claim that they're going to be doing something about it or because they're one of those smaller nations that are unfortunately unfairly impacted by it. New Zealand has come in for a bit of criticism with some of those policies and those uh, ambitions that New Zealand's Prime Minister talked about in her speech. Uh, the Climate Action Tracker calling it highly insufficient, saying uh, we were relying on mitigation potential of land use rather than trying to reduce emissions. 
look, we're all seeing the same sorts of messaging coming out from leaders around the world, but when we compare ourselves to the EU, the UK and the US, we are falling behind at the moment. And when I spoke to the ambassador, he did talk a little bit more about what needs to be done. We need to all work in for this together, and countries need to know that other countries are going to play their part. And I thought you heard the Prime Minister say that we will, and we are looking at what we can do. Are we playing our part though? Are we doing enough at the moment if it's been considered highly insufficient, that there's short-term policies that they don't keep up with ambition? Well, I, I think everyone's grappling with the speed of the rate of the change in climate, and the International um, Climate Change Panel has said that we need to do more. So the goalposts are kind of shifting. The speed of change is changing. It's just that we're now seeing that we need to change even further. So those are, those are big, challenging political issues. Um, and I think you've heard the messages here that there certainly is the political will. It's now how do we turn that into action. So, as you mentioned, COP26 will be really where we start to hopefully see some of the action taken on those big issues that we've seen raised this year at the General Assembly. Climate change is certainly one of them. All right. Thank you so much for your time. That is One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis live for us in New York. After the break on Q&A with his party in the polling doldrums, Simon Bridges casts off the leadership shackles. No, don't get me wrong, not a carefree stage. I care a lot about politics, about New Zealand. Again, it's part of writing the book, but I am in a, a, at a stage where I suppose I feel, you know, I don't have a massive amount to lose. Hokimai, welcome back. As in television, timing is everything in politics. In the week New Zealand went into lockdown, former national leader Simon Bridges published a book. It didn't work out the first time, but Simon Bridges fancied another crack. With the book, I mean. Fina Owen went to Tauranga to ask him about the text and the subtext. when we did an interview in your office, you were the leader of the opposition then. How are you a different Simon? Yeah, I'm more at ease with myself. I'm still far from perfect, perfect. I get a lot of things wrong, but yeah, I think I'm a more laid back, more mature person. Okay, and the haircut is part of that, is it? Midlife crisis, I don't know, but um, it's become a thing. I've heard it described as a defiant haircut. <laughs> uh, maybe, and maybe. And not an electable haircut. <laughs> ma ma maybe. I mean, I, I have to say, I will eventually get a haircut. So it's a, it's a great picture. He obviously went up in the air to do that. Well, that Simon of old, the leader of the opposition, have gone on reality shows. Give us a clue, for instance. Probably not. I probably would have assessed there was too much risk in these things. But I am in a, a, at a stage where I suppose I feel, you know, I don't have a massive amount to lose. When you're in the national media all the time, you lay yourself bare. And uh, now's the time where I, I, I'm trying to get some balance, spend more time with family. Yeah, go on the odd reality uh, TV show. People will always try and impute political motives to a politician. Funny that. But that was a world away from me when I wrote the book. If I, if I was writing from political motivation, I wouldn't be telling New Zealanders about how uncoordinated I am, that I'm religious, um, that I've been beaten up a lot, that I don't feel particularly masculine at times, all of these. And the book, again, was a bit of a self-help for me in thinking some of that. But does um, it make through. you more relatable, perhaps, um, as a leader? It, maybe, but I'm... Look, hopefully, actually. I mean, we, we all want to be... 
Um, we all want to be that. I genuinely don't know what the future holds for me. All I think I do know is my Protestant work ethic, my DNA, uh, the way I tick, I want to contribute. What if you were offered the leadership, though? Um, well, I don't want to deal on those sort of hypotheticals. It's certainly straight up. There's no guile or cleverness in this. Not my intention to become the, the leader of the National Party. Why not, though? Because I can't. You're, you're, you've always been a very ambitious person. Why are you happy to sit where you are in Parliament? I'm really enjoying uh, life and politics at the moment. I contribute as a local MP. I have spokesmanship roles. Actually, I still, um, as, as you've said, do uh, quite a bit of TV, uh, media on public issues. I've written a book. I, I get to see my kids in the weekend. What I've learned about myself is from a deeply ambivalent past, a grandmother, Naku Joseph, who was, in a sense, um, anti-Maori because she didn't think that was a way that you could succeed in this world, a father who was amnesiac about that. Um, I've been deeply ambivalent as well. I'm now hugely reconciled and uh, have a, a strong belief in uh, my whakapapa and what, what that means for me. Don't stereotype uh, us. There's as many Maori on the general role as there are on the Maori role. And it seems to me, though, oftentimes, if I could put it this way, Maori like me, um, who um, haven't grown up on a marae, aren't fluent in te reo, but are nevertheless every bit as much Maori as those that have had those experiences. Any uh, sort of youth section of a Tory party is always going to be labelled as, as young rich boys. It was interesting that you included a chapter on class mm. because we like to think we're a very mm. egalitarian society. You know, the truth is when we have several million dollar houses uh, and we have people who can't be housed, uh, when we have public uh, private schools that cost thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year um, and, and kids that aren't even going to school, we've got class in New Zealand. I make the point in the book that Christians are the new pariahs in our society. I mean, you go back 100 years and that wouldn't have been the case. It would have been the opposite, fundamentally. If you were an atheist in Parliament, you were probably shunned. I'm a free speech guy and you know, everyone's entitled to their view, but, but I do note the irony that it's not something you'd see about other uh, uh, more recent faiths uh, in New Zealand. so many of us are craving in New Zealand is a sense of identity and so I had to write about that from my perspective and it is worth Kiwis actually just taking stock sometimes as I have done this book and if I prompt you in reading it uh, to do the same I feel like you know maybe I've done uh, us both a good service. That is Simon Bridges speaking with Fina Owen his book is National Identity I've read it it's really good. Kua mutu. That's Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching and nāmihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your contributions. Hey, tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.